We're looking at a few verses this morning, quite a few actually, found in Matthew, and it's in chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 37, if you'd like to follow along. Then there was brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb, and he healed him, so that the dumb man spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and began to say, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is wasteland, or is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? And if I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. And I say to you, that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render an account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. The expression matters of the heart is kind of uh, used ambiguously in, in our culture today and can be used in a variety of ways. Uh, Tracy Chapman has a song entitled Matters of the Heart in, in which uh, she relates it to, you know, romantic feelings of love and attraction and, and such things. And Steve Jobs uses that expression and, and, and he talks about, you know, a person's passion in life. Well, Scripture doesn't actually use the expression matters of the heart, but the idea of the heart of a person as, you know, their being and the heart of their being and, and who they really are, um, the center of affections and desires and values, uh, this is certainly a major emphasis in Scripture. I mean, just uh, for, for example, 
We've already seen in Matthew, Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there will your heart be. Proverbs 3, 5, very well known. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O Lord. And Matthew 5, blessed are the pure in heart. Well, in our passage today that we're going to look at, Jesus will set forth a powerful truth about the heart. That what we say and what we do are really an overflow of our heart. So I've entitled our passage today, Matters of the Heart. And it's an invitation to look at our lives, to look at our life as it relates to our heart in our relationship to Jesus. All right, by way of context, Matthew has been showing us that opposition that Jesus was facing in his ministry was increasing. Jesus had even pronounced judgment on some of the cities in Galilee because of their obstinate rejection of him. Woe unto you, Bethsaida. Woe unto you, Chorazin. Because if, if the miracles that I'd performed in your cities had been performed in Sodom and Gomorrah, they, Sodom, would have repented. I mean, wow, that's a huge chastisement. Jesus is saying that the hearts of those in his day were more hard and sinful than the hearts of those in Sodom. And then we saw how the Pharisees and the religious leaders opposed Jesus over what he did on the Sabbath day. And Matthew tells us that it was then that they began to formulate a plot how to destroy Jesus. Their hatred and animosity is becoming very clear. Clearly, their hearts are evil. But last week we saw that despite the opposition, Jesus continues to fulfill his ministry as the servant of the Lord with faithfulness, humility, and gentleness. He continues his ministry to the weak and the broken and the needy. So let's begin with our passage today. We're going to see how that opposition reaches new depths and the consequences of it and how Jesus says these are ultimately matters of the heart. We begin with opposition and warning. And so our passage today begins with Jesus performing a profound and convincing miracle. Verse 22, there was brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb, and he healed him so that the dumb man spoke and saw. Well, here was a man who, obvious to all, was possessed by demons, and most likely as a result of that, he was unable to speak and he was unable to see. And very succinctly, Matthew tells us, that Jesus healed him, and he healed him. Four words in English, three words in Greek, and he healed him. So that the demons no longer tormented the man, he was then able to speak, and he was able to see, and the, and the demons had left him. Now, G, Jesus had cast out demons previously. 
He's re, he had restored the sight of individuals, and he had uh, restored speech to others. But this is the first time he does all three in one person. We can call this a triple miracle. We'll call it a three-run homer. And notice the reaction by the people. Verse 24. And all the multitudes were amazed and began to say, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? The people began to make the connection. They began to see it as so many others have, had already seen it. Yes, what Jesus is doing is evidence that he is the son of David, the Messiah. He didn't look like what they thought he would be. But they began to be convinced by the overwhelming evidence. But notice the reaction of the religious leaders. Verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Now, Beelzebul is another title for Satan. There's a lot of theories about what it means, but they're not important. It's just another title for Satan. That will become clear as we go through the passage. And notice that the Pharisees cannot deny the reality of Jesus' miracles. They don't try to minimize it. They don't try to say, oh, it really wasn't that big a deal, or it really didn't happen, or whatever. But rather state quite clearly that Jesus does these miracles through the power of Satan. What are they doing? They are deliberately countering the reaction of the crowd that Jesus is the son of David. And their tone, they say, this man, it's dismissive, it's contemptuous. It's like the crowd's all excited and the Pharisees goes, oh, no, 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 no. This, this man, come on. He does this by the powers of evil. And this has become the official position of the religious leaders. Well, Jesus then begins to show the irrationality of their thinking that their explanation makes absolutely no sense. Verse 25, And knowing their thoughts, in other words, Jesus was fully aware what they were thinking and saying, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, any kingdom divided itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. This is just a common sense proverb. It's all he's quoting here. It's just a common sense proverb. Any kingdom or nation, any city, in those days cities were walled entities, or even a family. If it has internal strife, if there's civil war, then that kingdom, that city, or that family, is significantly weakened. I mean, this is common sense. Everyone recognizes this. And so then Jesus applies this proverb to show the absurdity of their accusation that he is in league with Satan. Verse 26. And if Satan then casts out Satan, <laughs> he's divided against himself. How shall his kingdom stand? It was evident <clears throat> that the man was demon-possessed. And Jesus cast out the demons. There was no question about that. So if Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Satan, then Satan is working against himself. 
Satan would then be giving Jesus the power to destroy what Satan himself is doing. It's absurd. It makes no sense that Jesus receives his power from Satan because he's defeating Satan in what he's doing. And Jesus continues, verse 27, And if by Beelzebul, and if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Well, who are the sons that are apparently casting out demons? Well, apparently there were some among the religious leader, their sons, so to speak, among the religious leaders who had been able to somehow cast out demons. Now, a couple of possibilities here. Either it could be godly Jewish rabbis, and they were genuine exorcisms, casting out of demons. Or, more than likely, it was by imposters, and they were for show. In any case, they were very rare, and they were brought about only through bizarre and elaborate rituals and incantations. But contrast that to Jesus. Jesus did it frequently. Wherever he encountered a demon, boom, he cast it out. And, and, and most significantly, he did it simply through the power of his word. No elaborate rituals, no, you know, bizarre goings on and such. He spoke, and the demons obeyed his authority. But the point Jesus makes is this. If I cast out demons by the power of Satan, and those rabbis cast out demons, then that must mean that they too are casting out demons by the power of Satan. But of course they would never say that. Jesus then says, consequently, they shall be your judges. The presence of those among their own ranks who cast out demons proves them wrong about Jesus. If they can do it and not be in a league with Satan, well, so then can Jesus, especially the way he does it with the authority simply of his word. So Jesus has shown the absurdity of their charge against him, and now he's going to show show them the real significance of his miracles what they really mean. Verse 28. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus says, let's say for a moment that I really do cast out demons by the power of the Spirit of God. What does that mean? It means that I am then I am indeed the son of David, just as they had said. The Messiah, the one who is bringing the kingdom of God to this world. The kingdom of God is present in me. 
and you have the opportunity to enter it. And then Jesus explains more clearly what he is actually doing. Verse 29, or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? Well, Jesus is saying here that by the authority that he has demonstrated over Satan and his demons, they are totally subject to his word. He is saying that he has figuratively entered Satan's house, the strong man, and he has bound him, and he is taking his people away from him, those who have been held in captivity by the strong man. Now, technically, Satan will not be bound until Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom on earth. We know of that in Revelation 20. But in the ministry of Jesus, he is demonstrating his authority to bind Satan and rescue people from his control. In a sense, he is entering the strong man's house and binding the strong man and rescuing people from his control. That's what these miracles demonstrate. And then Jesus draws a line in the sand. And this is important. Verse 30. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. Jesus says there are really only two groups of people in the world. We are either with Jesus, we believe in him, we're on board with him, and if not, he says, we're against him. There's no middle ground. Jesus does not allow for middle ground. And if we're not gathering with him, and the imagery is that of gathering sheep into the sheepfold, if we're not gathering with him, aligning ourselves with him in the work of gathering people into the kingdom, then we're working against him and scattering. Jesus is saying that there's a cosmic war going on, and he is making clear the need for a declaration of loyalty. There is no place for neutrality. We can't be Switzerland in this cosmic battle. We are either for him or against him. And then Jesus shows the seriousness of what they are saying. He gives an ominous, ominous warning Verse 31 and 32. Therefore, I say to you. Now, we've seen this before, and I'll say it again, that whenever Jesus says this, he is saying, what I'm about to say to you is very important. So I want to make sure I've got your attention. I want to make sure you're listening. He's saying that to his audience. He's saying that to us as well. Therefore, I say to you, Any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit 
shall not be forgiven. And whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. This is often referred to as the unpardonable sin. Let's try to unpack what Jesus is saying here. First, just the structure, before we make any comments, just the structure of these two verses. We have two basically parallel statements. Verse 31, any sin or blasphemy can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And then in verse 32, it's the same kind of statement. Blasphemy against the Son of Man can be forgiven, or speaking against, excuse me, speaking against the Son of Man can be forgiven, but speaking against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So we have basically two parallel statements, kind of a general statement in verse 31, and then more specifically in verse 32. So let's begin with blasphemy. What does it mean? Well, blasphemy does not necessarily mean to curse or to take the Lord's name in vain, in anger, as is so often done today. Now, there is no question that that is sinful and totally unacceptable. We should never use the Lord's name that way, to take it in vain, ever. But that's not what he's talking about here. Okay, I, I, by, by saying that, I'm not giving us a pass <laughs> doing that. No, it is serious, a serious matter to use the Lord's name that way. But that's not the idea here. Blasphemy, as it is used here, means to intentionally disparage God or dishonor Him. To speak wickedly or slanderously of God and his nature and his character. To defame God, to to mock God. And so to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to disparage the very presence and work of the Holy Spirit in the life and miracles of Jesus. It is to dishonor the Holy Spirit so greatly to, as, if, as to say that his miracles are works of Satan, works of evil. It is to call that which is intrinsically good evil. That's what it means to blaspheme. But why can the sin of speaking against, that's verse 32, which is in parallel to blaspheme in verse 31, why can the sin of speaking against Jesus, the Son of Man, be forgiven, but speaking against the Holy Spirit not be forgiven? Ever. Not in this age. Or in the age to come, when the future kingdom comes, it won't be forgiven. Ever. Well, There are a lot of opinions on this. I can't even begin to go into all of them. We'd 
be here all afternoon. But this is what I think. This is what I think. To speak against or blaspheme the Son of Man, Jesus, is a rejection of Jesus and the gospel. That's what it is, just a rejection. I don't need him. Don't think he's the Savior. Don't think he's the Son of God. It's a rejection. And if later in a person's life, they do come to see Jesus as the Savior and, they need, and, and their need for him and believe in him, well, that previous sin of rejection is forgiven. Okay? No question. But blasphemy or speaking against the Holy Spirit is a different kind of rejection. It is a thoughtful and willful and conscious rejection of the clear evidence of what God is doing in Jesus through the Holy Spirit. It is, in this case, seeing the miracles of Jesus, knowing that they are from God, but blatantly rejecting them as such and disparaging them as from Satan. It is an arrogant and willful stand against God in the face of overwhelming evidence. But more than that, there's more to it than that. It is necessary to see and understand this in its historical context. The Son of Man, God incarnate, present on the earth, performing miracles in the power of the Spirit. So many miracles that John says if they were all recorded in books, the world could not contain the books. A little hyperbole there, but we get the point, you know, that Jesus did so many, and we only have a selection of those that are recorded in the Gospels. And the Pharisees don't just reject the evidence, they ascribe the work of the Spirit of God through the Son of God as being from Satan. And God acts as a judge to bring judgment on that nation for all who follow that arrogant lie. In an act of judgment, God says, that's unforgivable. And in pronouncing this judgment, God is, as Paul says in Romans, giving them over to their depraved minds. He simply withdraws any further work of the Spirit from their, in their lives, and without the work of the Spirit, they will never come to repentance and faith. It's a, it's a judicial act of God upon the nation at that time for their rejection of Jesus, the Son of God, 
and the Spirit of God working through him. Well, the question begs to be asked, well, can someone commit the unpardonable sin today? The answer to that is yes and no. Let me deal with no first. It is, the answer is no in that this, what took place here, what we've read about here and what we're looking at, was an historic event unique in all of history with the Son of God on earth and the work of the Holy Spirit like never before or after. We've never seen a work of the Spirit of God like that before or after. And God pronounced judgment on all in Israel who embraced that lie. So the answer is no. There is no sin today that is so heinous that it renders one unsavable. And there is no sin today for which one cannot find grace and forgiveness if one but seeks that grace and forgiveness in Jesus. So the answer is no. But the answer is also yes in a more general sense. And what I mean is this. There is an unpardonable sin today. And that is if one rejects Jesus as the Savior. And that person rejects Jesus until their dying breath then there is no forgiveness for that person. They die without Jesus and the forgiveness of their sins. So, in a very general sense, unbelief and rejection of Jesus as the Savior is an unpardonable sin. I'm going to come back to this um, a little bit later, okay? But we need to move on. Jesus has just brought a serious accusation against the religious leaders in Israel. You know, how can this be? How can they be guilty of such sin? Well, he now talks about the source of sin and unbelief, the source, where it comes from. And he calls for action. Verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. This is just a one-verse short parable, meaning good, healthy, strong trees produce good fruit, and bad, decaying, dyed, disabled trees, diseased trees rather, they produce bad fruit. Jesus is, in essence, saying, what's on the inside produces what's on the outside. Good tree, good fruit. Rotten tree, rotten fruit. You need to change the tree to change the fruit. Verse 34, you brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Jesus accurately describes the character of the Pharisees as a nest of snakes. 
and says, how is it possible for you to speak good and truthful words? The words we say are an overflow of our heart. And if your heart is evil, how can it be possible for you to speak words of faith and truth and grace and kindness? Because our words ultimately come from our heart. Verse 35, the good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. A person's word or deeds will be a reflection of what that person treasures or values most. Out of his good treasure, he brings forth what is good. If he treasures good things, if a person treasures the things of God, if he really treasures the things of God, then their words and deeds will be good and truthful, edifying, bringing peace, healing, comforting. They'll be good. But if a person really Treasures, what's most important, treasures, the things of the world, then their words will be a reflection of the values of the world. Power, authority, self-interest, lust, greed, and on it could go. We'll come back to this in a minute. And now Jesus gives a warning about the words that proceed from us. A warning of accountability, verse 36. And I say to you, here he says again, I want to make sure you're hearing this, that every careless word that men speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. We will give an account to the Lord for the things we say. And careless here doesn't mean simply an accidental bad word that slips out, although we'll be held accountable for those too. But that's not the idea here. Jesus is talking about words that we say that we don't care how they affect someone. Unthoughtful, uncaring, flippant, hurtful, abusive. We will give an account for them. Verse 37, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now Jesus is not saying that we are When he says, by your words, you're going to be justified. He's not saying that we're going to be justified, saved, okay, in that sense, because we say kind and loving words. And we are condemned to hell if we speak hateful words. That's that's not what he's saying. He's not using the word justified here the way that the apostle Paul uses it in his epistles. Jesus is saying that our words are evidence of being right with God. Or they are evidence of being separated from God. In the context 
Our words we speak are a reflection of our heart and treasure and our relationship to God. So, what should we take away from this passage? Well, I have three things. There may be more, but I'd like to just highlight three things. First of all, there's no middle ground with Jesus. There's no middle ground. Just as we saw the opposition to Jesus in our passage, there's the same kind of opposition to Jesus today. He's rejected. He's mocked. He's ridiculed, as are his followers so often. And his words are true for us today. He calls for a declaration of loyalty. He said, if you're not with me, you're against me. If you're not helping me gather into the kingdom, then you're scattering. Jesus calls us to be all in. But more than that, supposed neutrality, you know, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, uh, not quite there, you know, being casual, being indifferent in our relationship to him, being lukewarm. Jesus says that is the same as being against him. We've got to let that sink in. That's the same as being, a, you're either for him or against him. It's not for him and the middle ground and against him. You're either for him or against him. If we're not all in for Jesus, we may think we're fine. But if we're not actively gathering, we're working against him to scatter. Are you all in? Are you all in? Now, second thing to take away, regarding the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, I want this to be clear, okay? This is a difficult passage to understand. However you choose to understand it, you may not agree with my interpretation, and this is one of the few places I'll give you permission to disagree. You, you can do that. <laughs> but you've got to be able to defend it, and we'll talk about that later. Just kidding, just kidding. <clears throat> However you choose to understand, I, I do know this, and I'll do battle on this, <clears throat> and I don't want there to be any misunderstanding about this. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, unpardonable sin, does not mean, okay, I want you to hear this now, does not mean that there can be someone who wants to be saved but can't because they are convinced that they've committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. There can't be that person that wants to be saved but says, oh, I can't, I know I can't because I've committed unpardonable sin. Why? Why can't there be that person? Because anyone 
who, let's say, may have committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that person will never want to be saved. They'll never want to. Because it is the Spirit of God working in us that draws us to Jesus, that creates the desire to come to Jesus, that shows us, of our, shows us our need of a Savior in Jesus as the only Savior. It's the Spirit of God working in us that creates, that does that work. <clears throat> and if we've committed the unpardonable sin, the Spirit of God wouldn't be working in us. We would never want to be saved. But if a person wants to be saved, that is evidence It is the Spirit of God working in them, and the promise of Scripture, the promise of Scripture is that anyone, anyone who wants to be saved can be saved. Let them come to the water of life and drink freely. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So I don't want anyone here to think that. And if you're counseling someone that says, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. I want to be saved, but I can't. That's not possible. If they want to be saved, lead them to Jesus. Lead them to Jesus. Third thing to take away. The words we say and the things we do are a reflection of our heart. Where the mouth speaks... Out of that which fills the heart. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. This is one of the most powerful truths in Scripture. One of the most insightful and one of the most revealing. If we have a problem with our words... And our behavior, it is ultimately a heart problem. It's a matter of the heart. And this is an invitation to look at our life as it relates to our heart and our relationship to Jesus. We must must examine our lives. What words, what kind of words come from our mouth. I'm not just speaking about foul language, although that's an issue that cannot, must not be ignored. But more than that, our words, our words toward others, our words about others, toward those closest to us. How do we, do we speak and act one way in one setting and totally different in another setting? The way we speak and act is an overflow of our heart. And if our words and actions are not right in any setting, then our heart is not right. And we must make it right. We must make it right before God and get things right with God. By acknowledging before him our sinful ways, our sinful words, 
confessing them to him as sin and drawing close to God for strength and for transformation in our lives. We must have a heart that is right with God, that is seeking God and open to God and desires God if our words and our actions are going to be pleasing to God. May God give us a desire to have our heart right and pure and truthful before him. That we might demonstrate words and deeds that bless others and bring honor to him. Let's pray. Thank you again, Father, for your word that you've given to us. We pray that that spirit, of which we've read about and heard today, will be present among us at this time to do your work among us, in us, as individuals, among us, as your people. Lord, if there are any ways in us, among us, that are not pleasing and acceptable to you, Lord, may you show us. May the Spirit of God bring that conviction to us. May we come before you to cry out, Lord, in confession, in repentance, cry out for cleansing, cry out for mercy, cry out for strength and grace. Lord, use your word in the lives of every person gathered here this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.